Almighty and ever-living God, to whom else would we go? You have the words of life. Amen. You know when you're in the car and you're going somewhere, however far or near, whether you've been there before or not, and you put your destination into the GPS and you start going, and at some point you think to yourself, where is this thing taking me? When it happens, we're like, why on earth are you having me take this backwoods road in the middle of nowhere, driving through single stoplight towns past a bevy of weird little local fast food places with names that are just sort of off, like Derry Cone, or one I heard about in West Virginia from a friend called Derry King. So close to what's expected, but not it. That sort of experience funny when we get to see these lovely little fast food derivatives, but when we're in the middle of it, it can spark an anxiety that we're not where we thought we'd be, and we've lost our bearings, and we don't know how to get back on the path we expected to be on. And not even encouragement to just trust the process is enough to steady our spirit. That's this passage. It's a confusing and confounding gospel text. And if I'm honest, I sort of wish it weren't in our Sunday lectionary. <laughs> At first blush with it, I don't like it. It makes me uncomfortable. I don't like that Jesus says to a woman begging him for help, it's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. It feels out of character with the Jesus we see everywhere else. And there are lots of interpretations that have been given over the centuries, some better than others, to try and explain why Jesus said what he said and what he really meant by it. And if we've been in church long enough, I'm sure that you've heard some of them. But in all honesty, none of them have ever felt totally satisfactory to me. There's the idea that Jesus didn't really say it and it was added later, which would get rid of our problem, I guess. But this account is also in the Gospel of Mark, so we have to do business with it. There's the interpretation that Jesus was having a bad day and said something he didn't mean. He got corrected by this woman and in his humanity repented for what he said, which is better than the idea that he didn't say it at all, but then we find ourselves with a new problem to deal with. He repented? I don't personally take that tack either. Or the more historical, linguistic approach, where the word dog that Jesus uses, kunarian in the Greek, is derived from the same word that Goliath uses in 1 Samuel when he first sees David on the battlefield. Am I a dog, a kuan, that you would come to me with sticks? Now this holds a little more water, actually, as the woman would have been ancestrally linked to Goliath, the one that David would have defeated. But even if the word has more cultural and linguistic linkage to a puppy than a mangy mutt, as some scholars have suggested, we still have to deal with why Jesus would even say that at all, let alone to a foreign woman begging for help. And even the interpretation that I think falls closest to a real understanding of this passage, that Jesus might have been overstating his case on the front end to garner a reaction, to build a sort of proving ground of faith, finds itself dealing with the why of it all. Now, cards on the table here, I am not going to spend the rest of this sermon trying to offer an interpretation that makes clear sense of this passage. I can't. 
this is a concerning, confounding, distressing passage. And when I found out I was preaching on the day this came up in the lectionary, I spent a few weeks looking for interpretations that would make sense of it for me. One that I could use to get up here and say, this is actually what's happening. This is what he really meant by all that. It's all okay. And if any of those interpretations do hold water with you, that really is wonderful. Most of them are backed by painstaking scholarly work and are totally valid interpretations in our tradition, most of them. And I am genuinely glad. And if you're curious about them and want to hear more, please let me know. I'd love to talk about it, but I want to be as honest as I can be up here and tell you that they don't work for me. And when I finally sat down to write this sermon, I started to wonder if that wasn't the whole point. I can't explain why Jesus said this. I also can't explain why God exists at all, or why God loves me, or why God chose to die for me, or how God overcame the powers of sin and death and got up out of that grave, but I know it's true. I can't explain the whole nature and character of God because I can't know the whole nature and character of God. If I could, God would not be God. In some Christian traditions, specifically the sort of nebulous and vaguely named Celtic Christianity, God is sometimes depicted or referred to as a wild goose, something unpredictable that cannot be tracked or tamed, that shows up in places where we don't expect it to. I love that when I'm on board with the unforeseen actions and consequences. But this other side of the coin can be distressing, and it is distressing. But I don't think that we as Christians are called to explain and understand everything about God. But I do think we're called to spend the whole of our lives wrestling with it. I can't explain why wild goose Jesus said this, or what he meant by it. But I do know what the result of it all was. That at the end of it, this woman, who was not of the same ethnic group as the man she was coming to, this foreigner, saw her daughter healed through her faith in the power of the God who created her. Now, all of this is not to say that we have to accept this without question, just because it ends well, or that we can't get upset or frustrated or angry about this thing we can't understand, or that we just have to trust the process. Apologies to Coach Saban. If anything, we see in this passage that we have a God who listens to us. We're allowed to be mad about this or about the injustices we see in our lives, in our communities, in our world. We should be. And when that happens, when we see or experience the things for which we have nothing but anger or confusion or disgust, we can tell God about it. More than that, we have to. God can handle it. The God who created the cosmos and would take on flesh to live the life we live can handle our anger and our confusion and disgust. Our God hears us. Our God listens to us. This is a story of a woman who would go to God and take her concerns and frustrations, her worries, her cares, her daughter, and be heard, be listened to. And is that not our story too? Are we not a people who can take our concerns and frustrations, our worries and cares, to the God who made us, who knows us, and be heard and listened to as well? This is our story. 
This was a woman who came to Jesus believing that she was not the person for whom he had come, knowing that she was a Gentile like most of us, and not a lost sheep of the house of Israel, but showed up anyway, suffering the indignities, the injustice, the slings and arrows of cultural difference and centuries-long discrimination, to find herself heard, listened to by the God who had the power to change everything. Is this not our story? Are most of us not the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but Gentiles in our own right? Now, I don't love the phrase, the Bible is clear when it says dot, 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 because it usually walks right up into something that the Bible is at best muddy about. But I feel pretty confident in saying that the Bible is decisively clear about the Israelite people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as the chosen covenant people of God. But the Bible is also decisively clear that the Gentile people, those who are not the children of Abraham, people like me, are part of God's plan of salvation too. That doesn't negate the covenant God made with the Israelites, not even remotely but it does include us. From Paul's epistle this morning, has God rejected his people? By no means. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Paul says a little before our lectionary that the Gentiles have been grafted in to the promise of God. We now share in the promise of salvation that was at the first offered to the covenant people of Israel and is now offered freely to the world, to us. This story is troubling and confusing and confounding, but there's a blessing here. In Genesis, Jacob wrestled with a divine figure to the break of dawn with a hip out of socket until he wrangled a blessing. He wrestled, he got hurt, but he got the blessing. He held on. He didn't try to make it anything other than what it was, and he limped away into the sunrise blessing in hand. I think that's how we have to approach this text and all the disorienting and confusing texts in the Bible. We hold on, we get confused and angry, but we hold on to find the blessing. We warily, confusedly follow that GPS knowing that we're going to get to where we're going. The blessing here, muddy as it may be, is not that Jesus said something that we could totally understand. I don't pretend to know why Jesus said what he said, but I do know at the end of it all, we have a God who hears us, who can handle our anger and our frustrations, who cares enough to listen to what we have to say. And I know at the end of it all, we have a God who is faithful to his covenant people, of whom we have been made a part. And if that's not a blessing, I don't know what is. So we wrestle. When it comes to these texts like we have today, and there are plenty of them in the Bible, we wrestle. We have to. We don't have to avoid or try to make it anything other than what it is or perform a bewildering set of mental and spiritual gymnastics to explain it away. We stay with it. We fight with it. We rage against it. We wrestle until at the break of day, when we finally see the light, we can walk or limp away with the blessing in hand. Amen. Amen.